0: People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM, our weekly one-hour book show, where we talk about books, we interview authors, and we keep up with what's happening in the world through the printed word. We've got a very, very full program today. I've got two themes. One, so contemporary so in the headlines that uh, the we're going to be try we're going to try preempt the headlines next week we're going to focus on North Korea ahead of Donald Trump president Donald Trump's meeting with the North Korean leader then we're going to go from the present into the ancient past we're going to look at a few books around a Greek and ancient Greek theme. If we have got time, one spy thriller thrown into all of that. And then for the second half of the show, we're going to be talking to a very famous academic broadcaster, traveler, Kate Turkington, about her life and her newly released autobiography called Yes, Really, A Life by Kate Turkington. So as I said, a full, full, full show. And jump straight into the deep end. We're really going into the deep end. We're going to North Korea next week. Is going to see the summit in Singapore between President Donald Trump and the the leader of North Korea. And as a preparation through books, we're going to look at two books today. One, a book that's just been released. The other book that I did mention a few years ago when it came out. Both books are available in the shops, and uh, both books describe a country that actually seems more dystopian and more more from the pages of a fantasy novel than from the real world but that is North Korea. it is a country that has been so isolated from the rest of the world, and where a propagandist government has created such an enthrallment to one family that the type of psychology that has been meted out to the innocent people who happen to have been born on the northern part of the North Korean Peninsula, the type of psychology that has been meted out to them and the type of lives that they live, the type of withholding of information and the the abuses, the basic human rights abuses, when you read about it and the paranoia that underpins everything the government does, it seems absolutely beyond belief. It, it just defies, defies belief. So the first book I'm going to mention came out a few years ago. It's by Jang Jin Sung. It's called Dear Leader, and it's subtitled North Korea's Senior Propagandist Exposes Shocking Truths Behind the Regime. Jang Jin Sung's comfortable life as one of North Korea's senior counterintelligence officers was shattered when the forbidden document went missing. He and a friend were forced to leave the Hermit Kingdom, abandoning family, friends, everything they had ever known. Dear Leader is the harrowing true story of Jang Jin Sung's bid for freedom. One at immense personal cost. It is also the shocking expose of the inner workings of a secretive totalitarian state. So here you have the words of an inner member of the circle around the Kim family. Dear leader contains astonishing new insights about North Korea, which could only be revealed by someone working so high up in the regime. It is also the gripping story of how a member of the inner circle of this enigmatic country became its most courageous outspoken critic. Jang Jin-sung held one of the highest ranks in North Korea's propaganda machine, helping tighten the regime's grip over its people. Among his tasks were developing the founding myth of North Korea, posing undercover as a South Korean intellectual, and writing epic poems in support of the dictator Kim Jong-il. Young and ambitious, his patriotic work secured him a bizarre audience with Kim Jong-il himself, thus granting him special status as one of the admitted. This meant special food, food provisions, a travel pass, and immunity from prosecution and harm. He was privy to state secrets, including military and diplomatic policies, how the devastating scrutiny was effected, and the real position of one of the country's most powerful, elusive men, Im Tong Ok. Because he was praised by the dear leader himself, he had every reason to feel satisfied with his lot and safe. Yet he could not ignore his conscience or the disparity between his life and that of those he saw starving on the street. After breaking security rules, Jang Jin Sung, together with a close friend, was forced to flee for his life, Away from lies and deceit towards truth and freedom. The book came out four years ago, it's still in print, and it is one of a number of books written by people who have defected from the North, North Korea, and who have told the story of what life really like is in the North. The next book I've got is a novel, it's a thriller. It's just been released. It's called Star of the North. It's by a debut novelist, D.B. John. I have put a request through to get an interview with D.B. John. He's lived in South Korea and is one of the few Westerners to have visited North Korea. He's written work on North Korea. This isn't his first book because he co-authored The Girl with Seven Names which was Hyeon Seo Lee's New York Times bestselling memoir about her escape from North Korea. And he currently lives in London. This book is, it's been, it's been by the publicity departments at Harvel Sick. It's been called the most explosive thriller of the year. It's not a bad title or uh, um, description to give the book because, The type of things that happen in North Korea, if they are printed, are very, very explosive. The book is based on a lot of research into what happens in North Korea. And as D.B. John has visited North Korea, and he spent a lot of time with people who've defected, he works very hard to get the authenticity of life in North Korea correct, There's an author note at the back of the book, which at the very beginning of the book, he says, don't read it before you've read the book because it will be, you know, it's a spoiler alert. There are certain programs that the North Korean government runs that he mentions in the book, but if you know about them before you start the book, it will spoil the novel for you. And in the list of books that he quotes is Dear Leader by Jang Jing-sung, which I spoke about just a few minutes ago. Um, the novel starts off with an abduction uh, that the main the main characters in the book are two, well they they twins, that's one pair of twins, born to a Korean mother and an African-American father. The father was in Korea as part of the American army along the demilitarized zone, the border between South and North Korea, fell in love with a Korean woman. They had twins. They moved back to America. And those twins are girls. They have their full Korean identity developed by their mother. They speak Korean. They're inseparable while they grow up. And then one twin decides she wants to spend a gap year after she finishes 12th grade in America in South Korea. And she goes off, she's on a beach in South Korea on a, on a, on, a, on an island quite close to the North Korean border and she's just goes missing. In the book you know that a submarine from North Korea came up, kidnapped her and her boyfriend off the beach took them to North Korea, but no one else saw this happen, so it was just presumed that the two of them drowned in the strong ocean currents off the coast. Her sister has struggled with the loss of her twin sister for more than 10 years, for 12 years, and she just can't put this mysterious disappearance behind her. She is now in academia, And she, in America, she lectures in in a university in the Washington area. And she has uh, a very strong academic interest in East Asia and specifically in Korea, both South and North Korea. This is the book Star of the North. I'll be back with the rest of the the storyline straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM people of the book and we're looking at books with North Korean theme. We've mentioned the book Dear Leader by Jang Jin Sung which was written by one of the highest level defectors from North Korea. Now we're looking at a, 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 a thriller an explosive thriller. It's called Star of the North. It's, in, it's out available right now in good shop, book good bookshops, or any e-tailer, any book e-tailer on the web. It's written by D. B. John and it's published by Harvell Secker. And I was getting through the storyline. This the twin sisters born to a South Korean mother, an American African father. They grow up in America. They can speak fluent Korean. The one sister goes to spend a gap year in South Korea. She's abducted by North Koreans, but no one knows that she's been abducted by North Koreans. It's presumed that she's drowned in the sea. Her sister, Jenna, is living in America. It's taken her 12 years. She hasn't fully got over the, the disappearance of her twin sister, but she is an academic. She specializes in East Asia, and she is lecturing at the beginning of the book to a university, in the University Lecture Hall, and she's discussing North Korea, the enigma which is North Korea. But she approaches North Korea at this moment of the book from a purely academic perspective. She comes to the attention of people in the um, the, the State Department and the Secretary of the State, which is basically American Foreign Secretary, and some of her ideas for dealing with North Korea are being discussed at the highest levels of foreign policy within America. At the same time there is going to be a summit between North Koreans and the Americans in New York and she's chosen to be part of the American delegation. And then we have a very strong focus on life in North Korea in a few different places in a labor in a labor camp, basically a whole huge area in the north where everyone basically is under surveillance constantly. They go to their own houses. It's not really a a gulag camp, but everyone is under intense police surveillance. And we follow an old lady who struggles to make a living. She's old, she's arthritic, to walk around is difficult. And then we focus on a young family man in Pyongyang, the capital, and he's rising higher and higher within the inner circle of North Korea's government. And it's these three people we keep following. There are some very interesting cameo appearances. There's the book set in 2010, and there's the Secretary of State, which at that time in the world, in reality was Hillary Clinton. So we do have an interesting unnamed Secretary of State, a lady who meets with Jenna to discuss her ideas. No name is given, but you can see very, very strongly that the author is co-opting real people into his narrative. Then we have a whole lot of this, this when I say that, what I'm going to say isn't a spoiler alert, a whole lot of North Korean government projects and programs like the abduction of people of South Korean and Japanese beaches taken to North Korea and kept as hostages. Seemingly they're going to be used as bargaining chips for the North Korean government to get more money out of the West. But I say seemingly because a lot more nefarious purposes underneath the surface of these abductions makes its way through the course of the book. Then there's also the fact that the North Korean government, in order to get foreign currency, prints counterfeit money. Now, this is also well known. I've, re- I've reviewed a number of books where the the, 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 the plot from the book the, from the outset involves North Korean counterfeit dollars being printed and distributed around the world. And there is a there's a fantastic, fantastic scene where the North Korean delegation gets to New York. And the main person in this delegation is this young family man in Pyongyang. His name 's Cho. He together with the rest of the North Korean delegation, end up in a normal uh, burger joint in what Manhattan and they 're eating burgers and they can 't believe the size of portions and that are available to Americans in America. And it comes time to pay the bill, and he was given a wallet by his brother, who's also very high up in the North Korean government, and the brother put $300 in the wallet. And here's this really, really naive, uh, babes-out-of-the-wood type of a person, a North Korean diplomat in an American restaurant, and he's insisting to the rest of the North Korean delegation he's going to pay for the meal. He pays with some of the dollars his brother put into the wallet. They walk out the restaurant, and then the owner of the restaurant comes running after them, and he says, I'm sorry, your money's counterfeit. You have to find another way to pay. So these ideas, using the real programs, the real uh, ways that the North Korean government really and truly is a criminal state, showing how they run their, their state. It gives the book a lot of authenticity. At the same time, while the story progresses, we get to visit a labor camp in North Korea, a labor camp for political dissidents. And The basic slavery that the North Korean government enslaves, own citizens, anyone who represents a threat to the continued rule of the family that rules North Korea are put in these type of camps, living on levels of human abuse, on daily, minute by minute levels of human abuse that should have the... the United Nations passing resolutions against the North Korean government. But even in the book, the Americans do not focus on these labor camps, which can hold up to 50,000 people on one camp. They can be producing goods for export on slave labor under working conditions that you won't find anywhere else in the world. D.B. John makes these type of abuses Very, very, very public in the book. Uh, Then there's also new negotiations in North Korea. And Jenna is asked by the CIA to go into North Korea to renew her, her slight connection with the North Korean negotiator and diplomat that she met in New York. And she wants to go and she has reason to believe her sister is still alive and she wants to find her sister in North Korea. It's a very, very fast-paced thriller. It's over 400 pages, but it flies by in less than... Uh, you'll finish the book, if you do pick it up, in less than a week, but the... The the life of the average North Korean is illustrated very, very, very clearly in the book. And it's a very, very, very grim picture. And you think, you know, of all the human rights abuses in the world that the world makes so much noise about, here there's a whole state which is basically a cr- criminally run enterprise by one family with everyone that can co-opt into helping them in their criminal intent, perpetrating such unbelievable human rights abuses. I mean, there are certain things in the book I don't think really happen, but if they do, I wouldn't be surprised. But le- human abuse levels, that should have every single member of the United Nations standing and voting against any any, any activities in the world that will prop up this very, very, very... Uh, I can't think of the right word. A regime that is criminal in the ability to hold on to power in what they do with their own subjects. So those are two Korean books, North Korean books in in, in, uh, in anticipation of the North Korean and the American summit in Singapore. The first one, Dear Leader by Jang Jing-sung. The second one, Star of the North by D.B. John. I just want to mention one more book. There's another North Korea novel written by an American set in North Korea. I reviewed it a few years ago. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 2013. It still is in print, and it's called The Orphan Master's Son by Douglas Adams. It's also well worth a read. We'll be back with some of our ancient Greek books straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book, and we're talking books. We've just looked at North Korea, reflected through books. Books to look out for, Dear Leader. The book that's just been released into all bookshops across South Africa is The Star Star of the North by D.B. John. Explosive thriller. It'll keep you up at night and also keep you, it'll, it'll get you into a North Korean activist. And the third book I just mentioned was it's called The Orphan Master's Son by Douglas Adams. It won the Pulitzer Prize for novels in for fiction in 2013. Also reviewed here on High FM. Now we're going to Ancient Greece. The book that I want to focus on in the last few minutes that remain for the review section of the show is called Circe, And it's by Mad- Madeline Miller. Madeline Miller's first book was a retelling of the Iliad, the great Homeric epic. It was called The Song of Achilles and it won the Orange Prize in the year that it was published. The Orange Prize, which is now called the Women's Prize for Fiction. Uh very prestigious award it's handed out to it's it's awarded to books a book written by a woman in the last year mm-hmm. incidentally this year's 2018's um women's prize for fiction was announced earlier this week and it was won by the shamsi camilla shamsi's latest book home fire which we did review here on the show last year But back to ancient times, Madeline Miller's new book, Circe, is now connected to the other great epic by Homer, the Odyssey. Odysseus' return back from the Trojan War, which took him 10 years to get back home. During the Odyssey, Odysseus ends up on an island where there is a witch who turns his sailors into pigs. Odysseus wasn't with the sailors when this happened and one of his sailors reports this back to him. He goes across the islands to the witch's house and on his way there he meets the God Hermes who gives him a special plant called moly and when the God gives him moly the God tells him that this plant will protect you from the witch's potions and her magic. And that incidentally gives rise to the phrase holy moly. And Odysseus is then immune to the witch's spells and her magic. The witch's name is Circe. And Odysseus and Circe fall—they they have a, a, a relationship. And Odysseus spends a year on Circe's island. His men are turned back from pigs into humans. And then Odysseus is given warnings by Circe about certain dangers, certain extra missions he has to go on in order to arrive home safely, certain things he mustn't do, like uh, eat the cattle of Helios, the sun god, who happens to be Circe's father, and also warnings about two great dangers in the sea passage that he has to go go through Scylla and Cabadus, Cab- 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 Cabadus, the, the Scylla is the multi-headed monster that eats six sailors at a time passing through the straits beneath her rock and on the other side of the very narrow straits there is a whirlpool that just sucks ships in and there's no option, you have to Subject your ship to one or the other. So this is what Circe tells Odysseus. Odysseus goes on his journey and Circe is forgotten. What Madeline Miller's done is she has brought Circe back to life and made a whole novel around Circe. You only meet Odysseus in the book halfway through the book. because Madeline Miller's given Circe a full life before Odysseus even gets to her island. From her very birth, The union between Helios, the sun god, and a nymph, her mother, her siblings, the way that her siblings grow up, and the very, very cruel nature of the Greek gods, and the struggle between the Titans and the gods. And then there are all these cameo appearances where great people from Greek mythology come across the page. Prometheus is brought to be punished in Helios's underground palace for sharing the miracle of fire. With humans, and she speaks to, she speaks to Prometheus. Then her brother Arty becomes a great wizard in the land of Colchis, and he has the golden fleece that Jason, of the Argonauts' fame, is going to steal. And her own sister marries King Minos and gives birth to the Minotaur. And she meets Daedalus, the father of Icarus, who created the maze. Under Knossos. We have all of these cameos coming onto the scene. And then we have Odysseus. The book is beautifully written. It's an absolutely magical blend of Greek mythology creating backstories or filling in the gaps within the mythologies. And then real weighty contemporary issues about happiness in life and a moral life and protection and uh, hashtag me too in looking in terms of women's rights to stand up for themselves why is Cersei turning men into pigs why is she using her magical powers to emasculate the man the men who come to her island? When the men come to her island, they're generally sailors who've been out at sea for a long time. She has to defend herself, and she defends herself according to the best ways that she has at her disposal, which is with magic. It's a, it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant combination of contemporary issues, classical Greek mythologies, exceptionally exquisite writing. You don't win the Orange Prize for your debut novel if you don't have talent. And what Madeline Miller has done in this book, in Circe, is she has resurrected a long forgotten or a very little focused on character from ancient mythologies. And she's given her her place not just in the sun, but on the page and on the bookshelf. There's two other books that I want to quickly mention because they are available as well, but not so much a review, but just connected to Greece and ancient Greece. The first is a Connie Golden book called The Falcon of Sparta, which is Ancient Greek history in the war between the Greeks and the Persians. It is available in the shops, but I will review it in, the fu- in, in 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 future weeks. And then the last one is called Aristotle's Way: How Ancient Wisdom Can Change Your Life by Edith Hall, published by Bodley Head. Both books are available in the shops. As is Circe. Circe is published by Bloomsbury, and Circe is Bloomsbury's big fiction book for the year, so you will see the book in all bookshops. And it is a beautiful, beautiful read of fan- an unbelievable blend of mythologies, all different myths coming together with the beautiful, beautiful story and big, meat- meaty or weighty themes of mortality, a good life, revenge, reconciliation. It's Circe by Madeline Miller, published by Boonsbury and it is available. And now the second part of the show... We have a guest on the line from Johannesburg, Kate Turkington. Welcome to Chai FM, to our book show, People of the Book.
1: And thank you and good morning from a beautiful, beautiful Johannesburg. As you know, who would live anywhere else in the world? We have the best climate. We have the most energy and we have the friendliest people.
0: Good morning. Good morning. You've got so much energy having read your book and read the things that you get up to when you're not lecturing, when you weren't lecturing or when you weren't broadcasting or when you weren't setting exams. You've had a very, very eventful and exciting life. Instead of me giving you a biography on the radio. I'm going to let you do that. Can you please introduce yourself in your own words (laughs) and on your own terms?
1: Oh, my words, Bevan! that is such a a cut-up. No, 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 it isn't. Goodness, where do I start? Well, I start maybe with the very, very first prelude to the book. I won't read it all, but people have asked me why I wrote the book, and I thought, well, it's time, you know. I'm in my ninth uh, decade uh, and I came across a whole bunch of old love letters and I don't keep things I'm not a hoarder but I've had two husbands four children, nine grandchildren and a clutch of lovers and I, I had kept Four love letters, not from the two husbands, which I, I have, but a very strange selection of four letters. And I won't go through them all, but I will read you a bit from the last one. And it, it's the most interesting of all. It's written on that thin blue AML paper. Do you remember that? That was still used in the 60s and 70s. And the letter is penned in the most beautiful copperplate handwriting. And it begins, and I quote, My darling Kate, I can't live without you. I can't sleep. pace the room at night. Go drinking till all hours at the club. And never for a moment stop thinking about you. And and Stephen, the letter continues in this anguished vein for three more pages. Finally, finally. I'm going to take you away from Alan and run off with you, and we will be together always, Alex. I have simply no idea who Alex is.
0: Are you hoping? Nothing, are you hoping that whatsoever? Are you hoping that the publication of this book will flush Alex out and he'll come and introduce himself to you if he's still alive?
1: Oh no, I don't want some old coffee with a zimmer frame knocking on my knocking on my door, claiming to uh, be Alex. No, 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 no ways at all. But you asked me to interview myself. Okay. Um I, I was an evacuee, and I think many people listening, this will probably resonate with them or remember about their grandparents or their parents. This is, let me set the scene, it's London, 1939. World War Two has just been declared, and the British government, who usually can't manage anything very well at all, managed to evacuate in four days one and a half million children, from the centre of London. Why? Because the blitz was coming. My mother said they were dropping leaflets from the skies, the Nazis are coming, they're going to bomb us, they're going to rape and pillage. We have to get our children out of London, which, as it turned out, was absolutely true. But what it meant for us as children, I was four, my, my sister was six, and my mother said to my sister, Rita, you must not let go of Kate's hand. We were put on a train by our parents. Our parents didn't know where we were going. We didn't know where we were going. The people at the other end, wherever we were going to, weren't sure who they were getting as children. And off the train went, we had a brown paper parcel label tied to our coats. Off we went and my sister, who was very really dramatic, claimed But because there were two of us, and she wouldn't let go of my hand, she and I stood on a railway platform in the misty, moisty fens of Eastern England all day because nobody would choose us. But eventually we got chosen. My mother, Doris, and I wrote a book about her called Doing It With Doris, made a plan. And in six months, we were taken back to, not London, to Hertfordshire, to a little village, because... By then, my father had got a job at the de Aircraft Factory, and we had moved out from the East End of London. And you know, Stephen, what is so interesting to me, I really do have a superb memory. Uh, I don't remember names, I'm very bad at names, but I do have a superb memory. But of that six months when I was evacuated, taken away from my parents, I have absolutely no memory whatsoever. And I'm sure a shrink would call it classic block art, But it's raised from my mind, gone forever. I was reunited with my family and grew up happily in, in Hertfordshire until I went to Africa, to Nigeria, when I was 21 years old.
0: Okay, that's a good introduction and I want to jump into the rest of your life because that's what your book is. It's, it's a celebration of a life lived and, and what a life. I want to start because there's a number of themes that keep coming through your life. Travel, the theme of believe it or not and the unknown and the skepticism and the belief and the toying with the idea of what's beyond the general known. And uh, also your your academic careers, both as a teacher, an examiner, and then a lecturer at Wits University in Johannesburg. These are three, within your more public life, these are three themes that keep coming forward again and again and again. I want to look at your travels. While you were still a teenager, your first two travels to France and to Sweden, I think they must have created a love for travel in you. They must have really created a very deep, deep-seated desire for travel. What
1: I, I think so, and I think, too, in a way, that six months when I was sent away from my parents, I think maybe they shaped my life because I have always lived in the present. I, I, you know, I, I don't have any particular faith. I, I don't ascribe to any particular uh, way. But I do like the Buddhist philosophy, which is, our, I'll come to the travels in a moment, and the Buddhist philosophy, and here's 5,000 years in three sentences for you, the past has gone. You learn from it, but it's gone. The future never comes. So carpe diem, seize the day, do your best in the moment. So I have always lived in the moment. I haven't lived in the past. I don't live... In the future, I'm not really bothered about either. So when the opportunity to travel has presented itself, I've I've taken those opportunities. And so often, I've gone somewhere to a place I don't know, with people I don't know. I don't know if I'm being met at the other end or what. Let me just tell you quickly about the very first trip abroad I made to France. I was a, a girl guide, and... One summer, I met a French girl guide who would come over from France to spend the summer with Minka's family. We made friends and we chatted and that was it. The following Easter, our phone rang at home and it was the parents of that French girl guide who was called Agnes. Would Kate like to come and spend the summer in France with them? We didn't know them. We didn't know their surname. We didn't know who they were. My mother said, yes, of course, because that's how she was. She somehow got together five pounds, which was a lot of money in those days, put me on a channel boat to uh, France, and off I went. I arrived at the Saint Nord in Paris. I didn't know who was meeting me. Anyway, everything turned out beautifully. The Blanchard family... Had the most magnificent apartments on the Boulevard Saint Germain in Paris. They had a villa in the south of France, right next to the villa of the Duke and Duchess of in Windsor. And here was I, age 14, coming from grey post war England to this Technicolor, azure blue skies, blue Mediterranean. Beautiful blossoms on the trees in the south of France. It was like going into the middle of a Technicolor film. And I lapped up every moment. You couldn't do it now. I don't think you could send a daughter off to a place unknown to people unknown. In the same way, my, my mother was a bit of a sleuth. Uh, she, she put Hercule uh, Poirot to shame. She found out my her father, my grandfather, had be, was Swedish. He was a, a Swedish sea captain and eventually ended up on the Isle of Dogs in England where he married my grandmother, who was a Yorkshire witch. That's, a, that's another story. But my mother had somehow sleuthed enough to find out members of her father, the Swedish father's family in Sweden. So at the age of 16, off we went, my sister and I, to the island of Gotland, which is a big island that lies between the mainland of Sweden and the coast of Lithuania. Big island, beautiful, beautiful island. Visby, the the capital is one of the few-walled cities left in the world, medieval, beautiful city. Off we went. Two relatives we didn't know. We had never seen. We didn't know their names. And again, we spent the most amazing summer on the island of Gotland. And it was this. And let me just go back to my mother. Let's go back to World War II. My mother was the sort of person who always, saw, took opportunities, was positive, in the moment. So imagine, here Hitler's armies massing on the shores of Europe, as I said previously, coming to rape and villages and kill us and take us out. My mother would take my sister and I into the garden and say, here's the moon. If you want to go to the moon, you must go to the moon. That's how I was brought up. Do what you want, go for it. Take opportunities. And yet, yet, Stephen, just to give you an example of how environment does play a part in all our lives. One of my very best friends here in South Africa, who was also brought up by a loving, caring family, but she was brought up in fear. So she was brought up, there's the sewing machine. Don't use it. The needle might go through your finger. It's total Polarization. Go out and do it. Risk it. Try everything. Don't do it. No, no, no. It's better to be safe than sorry. So, so there you go. My philosophy: live in the moment, take opportunities. And therefore, I have travelled the world. I have been to Everest Base Camp a few years ago. I'm about to go off to Ghana in a week's time to to run a media training workshop. I have traveled through Africa. I've traveled through Asia. I've been to the far, far corners of the world. I've been to Antarctica. I've been to the Arctic. One of my favorite trips, I've just thought about it now. My daughter, Sarah and I, Tara runs Slow Communications, which is a uh, communications company with her sister, Tiffany. And she and I, and both the girls, often travel together. And we had been invited by Indian tourism to go to a conference, hi, 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 in the Himalayas, hi, 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 which was taking place in a little town called Missouri. Um, so off we went. It took us... 30-something hours to get there. We flew, we flew again. We got into an ancient jeep. We went up the Himalayas, round hairpin bends in in death-defying circumstances with mountains towering beside us ever in the uh, background. And when we finally got to the conference, there were 38 other people. There were 40 delegates in all. All 38 of the other delegates had climbed Everest. We were the only two who hadn't climbed Everest. To this day, we're not sure why we got invited, but we took great opportunities. We met the first, I don't remember her name, I told you I was bad at name, the first woman to have ever climbed Everest. She actually died last year, a marvelous little Japanese woman, who told us that her husband said she could climb Everest if she had a baby first. So she had a baby first, then she climbed Everest. So now the organizers realize that we're sort of cuckoos in the net. And they, they put us in the company of two wonderful mountain men, Himalayan mountain men, both Sherpas, both who'd climbed Everest many times and they told them to take us off to tour the Himalayas and off we went. We went to places like Haridwar to with Rishikesh to one day to the shrine of a goddess called Pavati. They said to us, would you like to go to the shrine of the goddess Pavati? It's just two kilometers along the road. We said, yes, we'd love to go, not a tourist place at all. When we got there, what they hadn't told us, it was two kilometers up. So we had to climb up. And we faltered. And they found us two... There mountain ponies, and we sat on these mountain ponies, and somehow we got ourselves to the top. Another time we were in, I think it was Rishikesh, and they were doing the ceremony of Atta, which is a Hindu ceremony when you light lamps and you send them down the River Ganges, and it was dark, and you can imagine all these flickering lanterns glowing as they drift slowly along the slow-moving Ganges. And one of our mountain men turns to us and says, and we're there with a crowd of people shouting, um, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. You know, if you can't beat them, join them. And one, of, one of our guides said to us, you know, we're very lucky tonight. There's only 60,000 people here. <laughs> and Sarah and I were the only tourists, I think, in the whole place. So take opportunities, Stephen. It's never too, never, never too late to do something you've always wanted to do. That's my philosophy
0: of life. It's, we, we're in conversation with Kate Turkington. The book is Yes, Really, A Life. And we've got a number more questions to ask Kate and to share her travels, her, her wisdom and her life experiences straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book. we in conversation with Kate Turkington. The book is, yes, really a laugh. It's published by Tafelberg and it's available in the shops at the moment. Kate, we've got about six or seven minutes left and I've got so many questions that I want to ask you. One, I'm going to jump into it right now. You mentioned throughout the books gifts and mementos that you have received from loved ones, strangers met on your travels, from every possible source. Can you list a few of them and elaborate why they're so precious to you?
1: Oh, that's, that's an interesting question, Stephen, because let me just preface uh, this with I'm not a things person. I don't do things. I believe... I, I was asked earlier in the week about money and whatever. I said my riches are my family and my friends. So I believe people can take things away from you, but they can't take memories. They can't take experiences. And whenever, ever I've had any money, I've taken my family. I have a big family. I've taken whoever's available, and we have traveled together. Nobody can take those experiences away. But as I'm talking to you, I'm sitting in my study at home, I'm looking at a tapestry on the wall that I got in Peru, uh, and there are my dogs. Uh, they've, they've suddenly seen a very large hardy dog come and sit on the wall. So that that's the background noise you can hear. I love hardy dogs because they're cheerful. But I'm looking at a tapestry I was given in Peru by a shaman many, many years ago, and it consists of... Dozens and dozens of little tiny people, handmade people, with hats and boots and scarves and cloaks, all stitched together on this tapestry. And that brings back many, many happy memories of the first time I went to Peru, which is an amazing country. In front of me, I'm looking at a picture that I got on the island of Bali uh, that was given to me by a friend, not not in the very touristy parts of Bali, but way inland in the very, among the very quiet, peaceful rice paddies away from the madding crowd. And there, just below it on the shelf, is a, a can-carved Komodo dragon. Because on that same trip, we, we we were on a yacht and we sailed to the island of Komodo, and Komodo dragons, apart from being in zoos, and by the way, there is one in Pretoria Zoo, uh, the only place you can see them in the world are three small islands that they inhabit in the, oh now, is it the South China Sea? Anyway, it's the Sea that's round barley, and these things are enormous. Think of the biggest crocodile you ever saw, and then add some to it. And we were very, very lucky, taking some luck struck again, because we were just accompanied by two young guys with forked sticks, and we found two Komodo dragons feeding. They just pulled down a deer. Now, it was about the size of a female poodoo a young female gouda, and they were feasting on this, and the saliva was dripping from their mouths, and their double yellow forked tongues were darting in and out of their mouths. And we got up quite close, and we took selfies, and we took pics, and thought, oh. when we got back to the little hut that served as the office, there on the wall, written in red pencil, was the number of people who'd been killed by the dragons in the previous years. We had no notion of this as we sat there on our haunches, uh, hunched on our haunches, taking photos of us and the Komodo dragons. So I could go on and on, on. I'm surrounded by things from Alaska. I have a beautiful photo here from Alaska. I have angels on calf skin from um, Ethiopia. I have a painting from an Aboriginal elder. Uh, a woman elder, very unusual in Aboriginal tribes, whom I met in the Red Desert outside Alice Springs, who painted this particular uh, painting for me. And she she spoke some English. She didn't speak a lot of English. She was a very old lady. And it was quite an unusual It's a dot painting. You know, the Aborigines do the famous dot paintings. And it's just circles and circles with flowers and circles and circles. And she said to my nephew, who was a senior game ranger, tell this woman, she didn't know who, who I was, this represents love and peace. So there you are. Wonderful
0: Wonderful mementos. I could go on and on and on, Stephen. <laughs> got uh, that will have to be for another time. We, we've got time for one short question, and I want to okay. ask. I want to ask you because uh, we, we, we're both broadcasters, but you've got, a, you've got a very illustrious career in broadcasting from the BBC to 702 in South Africa, but you're most famous in South Africa for your Sunday night show, Believe It or Not. How did that show recalibrate your view of the world? Oh,
1: totally. Uh, that's they believe it or not, 20 years of three hours every Sunday night reshape my view of the world? That's, again, such a good question, Stephen. I interviewed faith healers. I interviewed bishops. I interviewed your chief rabbi. I interviewed Anglican archbishops. I interviewed religious leaders of every kind. I I went to temples in India where people worship rats. I I spoke to every kind of manner of faith, every denomination of people who believed and people who didn't believe, like the great atheist thinker Richard Dawkins. And you know what I finally came to understand? That it actually doesn't matter what you believe if your intentions are pure, if you're out not to hurt anybody else, and these are universal principles, human principles. They're not. They're not belonging to any one religion. Faith, um, faith in oneself, faith in one's fellow beings, love, honour, respect, goodness. The, the Dalai Lama once said to me, he reminded me about the interconnectedness of all things. That I see whether it's stones or the hardy are sitting on my wall or talking to you to, or to all the people who are listening, there's something that connects us all. And I don't really think it matters what you believe, as I say, if your intentions are pure, if your heart is pure, if love is there. And I think, I think for me, the meaning of life is love. I have no doubt about it whatsoever. The meaning of life
0: is life and to love and to be love. We just finished our conversation with Kate Turkington. The book that she's just written is called Yes, Really, A Life. It's published by Tafelberg. It's available at the moment. Every book and also the Kate Turkington book that we spoke about today has been posted on our Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search for people of the book on 101.9 FM. the North Korean theme, the classical Greek theme. And, Kate, thank you to you for making the time available to speak to all of us here on Chai FM. We've got a growing listenership across Johannesburg. And uh, it's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure to celebrate your life through the book, Yes, Really. Thank you.
1: And my pleasure, my pleasure, too. And I remember when your radio station started, how I interviewed the first people who set it up. And Mazel sort of, you have done so, so well, and will continue to do so
0: well. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And to everyone out there, good Shabbos. Keep reading and keep warm.